Hello and thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Federalist Files. We're going to be going over Federalist number 43. This is going to be the very last one of the series of the objects of the federal government. It's going to explain, I think it's the sixth, um, actually the fourth class of, miscell of miscellaneous powers. I'm pretty sure there's six, so maybe this isn't the last one, but it is uh, titled The Same Subject Continued, The Powers Conferred by the Constitution, Further Considered, written by James Madison, January 23rd, 1788. Got a lot of topics in this one. They include federal buildings, supersede the authority of the state, right to establish copyright, patent laws, federal power to quell insurrection, consequences of guilty, guilt shall not carry over to other persons. That one's very important. Every state is to be Republican in nature, and amendments require three-quarters of states in agreement, amendments to the Constitution. So... This one's pretty substantial. This is a this is a this is a long one here. A lot of substance to it. This is just general miscellaneous powers that don't have another classification that are to be given to the federal government and are under the federal government's scope. So Madison he begins uh, by outlining the fourth class of miscellaneous powers. He states, and I quote, a power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for a limited time to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writing and discoveries, end quote. So this one's simple. This, this is patent laws, uh, patent copyrights, and he says for, which is important, the uh, limited time. Uh, Madison explains that this was a common law principle in Great Britain, and it will scarcely be questioned uh, the right to useful invention seems with equal reason to belong to the inventors. That's what he stated. So it's just the idea of you need to have an economy where these inventions can be copyrighted and patented so they're protected and that will secure the idea of innovation in an economy because when you have an economy where if you go and you make something and it can quickly be stolen from you, your idea can be stolen from you and then, uh, mass produced at a cheaper price then there is no reason for you to innovate and to create new products if the money's going to be stolen from it. it takes it takes the incentive out of innovating and creating new goods and commodities and products that people want to use and that's the reason for that very simple so he continues he states and i quote to exercise like authority over all places purchased by the consent of the legislature of the states in which the same shall be for the erection of forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and other needful buildings, end quote. So in this one, he's just going to go through, I think there's a number, I want to say, I want to say almost eight of them, just different random miscellaneous powers that don't really follow under other other topics. So this one's just the, the right to be able to put up federal buildings and states, as well as arsenals, dockyards, whatever's needed for the federal government scope, whether it's... Um, whether it's forts for the military or it's federal buildings like the social security office that they have or other other federal buildings that I could I'm trying to think of now the FBI buildings uh, different law enforcement divisions within uh, the states themselves so things of that nature now the former uh, excerpt pertains to copyright laws for authors and inventors while the latter refers to an ex exercise of legislative authority over American territories as well as federal buildings, military bases, and ports of commerce. And that's the federal scope. 
So in reference to the latter, meaning the right to build those military bases, federal buildings, he explains, Madison, and I quote, the public money expended on such places and the public property deposited in them requires that they should exempt from the authority of the particular state, end quote. So that one's a little cryptic, but it's pretty simple, is once you were, this is a federal building, this is now federal property, thus the state law does not, the federal law takes precedent over the state law. For example, when there's a state of emergency in New Jersey, or just in any state in general, the post office will still go to work because the post office is a federally run agency. It's, it's federal. It's of the federal power. Uh, now, federal employees actually, I believe, have certain rights over other private employees, uh, such as First Amendment rights. They have extra rights in the workplace. You can't fire somebody because you disagree with their speech, especially if it's not threatening or inciting violence in the federal workplace. Whereas you can kind of get away with doing that in the private workplace. So, next. He describes next, and I quote, To declare the punishment of treason, but no attender of tre treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture, except during a, the life of the person attained, end quote. And this is very important. This is the idea, and, and this was something that was not consistent in Europe. In Europe, if it was one person from your family that did that was a treasoner, it was almost like your entire family went down as treasoners. And that was your reputation, rather, whether you were killed off with that family member or you were sent to prison with the gulags. Uh, this was not an American principle. It's it's the idea that it's the idea that a violation of the law cannot be passed on through kin or can just not not be it is that when the person passes or or when that person has served their term it is over it cannot be passed on in summation the federal government shall not have the authority to punish treason and the consequences of guilt shall not go beyond the perpetrator and the reason he says to declare the punishment of treason but no attender of treason so yeah they can they can punish treason i don't really know the government really can't the legislator, there, there's something written into the Constitution saying that there shall be no bill of a tander. And a bill of a tander is different than just the idea of a tander. It's attaining somebody, um, taking them into custody. But a bill of a tander would be a legislative act. It would, it would be equal to having the legislative body of, of the uh, federal government just writing up a bill to arrest somebody. With, without due process, which is why that's that's against the uh, constitutional, because that, that's unconstitutional because that was actually done in Europe probably many times. So next he goes on, and I quote, As treason may be committed against the United States, the authority of the United States ought to be enabled to punish it. But as newfangled and artificial treasons have been the great engines by which violent factions, the natural offspring of free government, have usually wreaked their alternative malignity on each other the convention have with great judgment opposed the barrier to this peculiar danger by inserting a constitutional de definition of cr of the crime fixing the proof necessary for conviction of it and restraining the congress even in punishing it from extending the consequences of guilt beyond the person of its author so like i said guilt can't be passed on can't be passed on through generations uh, it, it is the one person, it is the, the perpetrator, and they and that's it. 
that's the end. And once again, the Congress cannot convict anybody of any uh, law violation. Now, the Congress, we just had Trump just got acquitted the other day. If the Congress were to convict him on impeachment, he would not go to prison for that. Then he would have to go to, if, if the Attorney General wanted to go after him, then he would have to actually go to a criminal law court and, and you know, he'd be a defendant, whatever the crime may be that they try to charge him. I can see this coming in the future. I can see them still trying to charge uh, Donald Trump with a crime because actually I think I think part of this is political grandstanding. I actually think that the Biden administration is doing so terrible that they're, they, they're doing anything that they possibly can to take off all of the scrutiny and the criticism of them and point it in a different direction. Uh, we're still talking about a guy that is no longer president and um, the liberals don't really care about anything other than Donald Trump. They don't care if... The country gets thrown down a, uh, gets kicked down the Spartan hole. They just, it just does not matter. It just, we will continue to spiral downward. Uh, people will lose their jobs. Taxes will be raised. Who knows what's going to happen to the capital gains? They're talking about Second Amendment right now. They're talking about taking strong uh, gun control of, what do they say, reasonable or common sense gun control measures against uh, law-abiding citizens at this point. So next, under miscellaneous powers. He states, and I quote, to admit new states into the union, but no new state shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state or nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as Congress, end quote. So if you want to form a new state within two different states, the, the state legislature has to pass it as well as the uh, federal government, the Congress. Has to, has to pass it as well. It's pretty self-explanatory. So next, he goes on, the eventual establishment of new states seems to have been overlooked by the compilers of that instrument. We have seen the inconvenience of this omission and the assumption of power into which Congress have been led by it. With great propriety, therefore, has the new system supplied the defect. So what he's saying is the old system, the Articles of Confederation, had had nothing set up for accepting new states. Thus, the uh, the proposed Constitution filled the void and supplied the defect in this by actually having a provision. So this power is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, the next power, he states, and I quote, "...to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States with a proviso that nothing in the Constitution shall be so construed as to prejudice any claims of the United States or any particular state." End quote. So, I think this one where, this is the one where he's talking about the United States territory and people shouldn't be fighting over territory because because territorial differences was commonly a source of war especially in Europe so he's saying whatever whatever the federal government is their jurisdiction to have rules and regulations respecting territory drawing state lines okay this is this is where new jersey is this is where new york is and that just simple stuff like that so this provision explains the federal government's power to make law for their territory and that no laws shall be misconstrued in the Constitution or in any state. This provision is due to threats of jealousies over territory, the avarice of men. Then I think he goes on here, he's going to start explaining how the federal government is, I think, supersedes the state in certain aspects, I think. Next, and the most significant amongst the miscellaneous powers, as well as one of the most important excerpts of the paper, 
Yes, this is where he states it. He states, and I quote, to guarantee every state in the union a Republican form of government to protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence, end quote. So this is actually very important. So he kind of differentiates a little bit. He says the legislature should be handling with domestic violence or domestic insurrections, but when the legislature can't be convened, which isn't very often at this time, it'll be the executive will be the commander-in-chief and he will quell the insurrections. Now, additionally, more importantly, guaranteeing that each state in the union is of the Republican form of government, meaning you cannot have an aristocracy, you cannot have a monarchy where you just have one guy in power and there's an intermingling of powers where the executive branch is somehow also the judicial branch and, and the legislative branch. You can't have the executive, and this is why uh, conservatives usually aren't huge fans of executive orders, you can't have the executive branch, as in the, pre the governor of that state, making the laws for the state. That is what the state legislature is for. So what he's saying is that, that every government, you can, you can modify certain provisions in your government and your state constitutions, but it must still have the Republican uh, characters and it must still be a republic. It must be representative of the people. It must afford them specific certain uh, individual liberties. And he'll go deeper into this. I believe here. Let's see. He implores uh, the importance of the Republican form of government in the states. He states, as long, therefore, as the existing Republican forms are continued by the states, they are guaranteed by the federal constitution, end quote. So I think this is very important. I think the reason that he's, he's really stating this is that these Republican forms of government that are in the federal constitution... He's saying as long as these states afford the rights to their citizens and they do what they're supposed to do, they follow the Republican form of government, then they are guaranteed by the federal constitution. You mean, okay, what do you mean they're, they're guaranteed by the federal constitution? What does the federal constitution afford these states that it's guaranteed to them? Um, which is, which is, this is the most important thing. It is for self-preservation reasons. They're guaranteed that if somebody attacks that state, you're going to have the union roll up on them heavy with uh, troops. And that's really the point. And also they're afforded, you know, certain trade rights, certain trade privileges where they're not going to get taxed as much as, you know, some, some sort of Great Britain sending their goods in and they can use uh, federal roads, things of that nature. Uh, and, and also they're afforded a seat in Congress or, you know, what have you. They're afforded seats in Congress for their House of Rep members and they can elect people to the Senate as well. So next he goes on. And I quote, in a confederacy founded on Republican principles and composed of Republican members, the superintending government ought clearly to possess authority to defend the system against aristocratic or monarchical innovations. The more intimate the nature of such a union may be, the greater interest have the members in the political institutions of each other, and the greater right to insist that the forms of government under which the compact was entered into should be substantially maintained, end quote. So he's saying, what, what I was mentioning before is that we are protecting against an aristocratic system or a monarchical structure. Um, they are able to maintain the republic and, and some of the benefits that you get from the union 
in individual states as long as they follow a Republican form of government. And obviously they, they abide by the federal constitution, which it really is not that difficult to abide by the federal constitution. It's not extremely specific. It's pretty general, pretty broad, uh, just affording your citizens the individual liberties and following the election rules and, and procedures and the changing of election laws and things of that nature. Just being somewhat uniform, somewhat uniform in your uh, conduct as a state that's supposed to coincide with the rest of the states around you to create the union. So considering that the power of the states is the form in which the people are mostly under, Madison claims that the states have the right to substitute other forms of Republican-type governments, but he states... And I quote, it may be answered that if the general government should interpose by virtue of this constitutional authority, it will be, of course, bound to the uh, pursue the authority. But the authority extends no further than to a guarantee of a Republican form of government, which su supposes a pre-existing government of the form which is to be guaranteed. As long, therefore, as the existing Republican forms are continued by the states, they are guaranteed by the federal constitution. Whenever the states may choose to su substitute other Republican forms, they have a right to do so and to claim the federal guarantee for the latter. The only restriction imposed on them is that they shall not exchange Republican for anti-Republican constitutions, a restriction which it is presumed will hardly be considered as a grievance. End quote. So this is something that's not going to really be challenged, is, is what he's saying. This is, once again, the guarantee is that a Republican form of government from our federal head, and we want to uh, instill and institute that, we want to make sure and maintain maintain that in the individual states any trade-off for republican principles and a republican constitution for an anti-republican constitution when there's some sort of monarch and that is the person that makes law and enforces law then we're going to have a problem and it's not going to work out so in summation the state governments have the right to alter their constitutions but as soon as they choose anti-republican principles they're in violation of the federal constitution which makes sense so if you're looking at uh some of these gun-grabbing states shall not be infringed, uh, they are in violation of the Constitution, anti-Republican principles, uh, what can I think of other things, there's there's other ways of, like I said, the uh, sanctuary cities, that is another thing that's a, directly in violation of the Constitution, because you're supposed to enforce illegal aliens, you're supposed to enforce law as, as per the federal Constitution, and that's, that's kind of up to the executive branch, I think. A lot of it's handled by the executive branch. It's, it's enforcing law, essentially. Um, what can I think of other things? I mean, just general property rights, general liberty principles. There's a lot of states that take them away by taxation. By having such high taxation that you make a life... You make you know the, the federal pro poverty rates a certain number. I don't know exactly what it is. I want to say it's something like $12,000. Um, now, if you live in New Jersey... The poverty rate, realistically, if, if you tell me, oh, you're, well, you're living above the poverty rate, you still are living in poverty. Uh, above, well over the poverty rate, you could still be living in poverty because the taxation is so high that the government is really actually confiscating your freedom and, and, your, um, and your liberty. And, and this is something, this is blamed on... You know, no, having having a low wage or not being able to to afford your bills or your your taxes. This is blamed on somehow the pride. I don't know how it's happened, but private industry has gotten blamed for the for the government shoving their fists down their throats and pulling all of our organs out, pulling all of our money. They're doing whatever they can to take as much as they can from you. 
and somehow the private industry is getting is getting blamed for it, which I always thought it just doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical. Uh, now, the tax rates in a state like New Jersey or New York, uh, some parts of California, Massachusetts has some pretty high tax rates as well. New Hampshire, I think Vermont too. Um, in certain areas, every, every, every big city kind of has an area, but those are the things that actually do, that, that's a big thing, you know, that's a weird thing when people say, talk about the economy, the economy, and, and then, you know, liberals really, like, oh, well, I don't care about the economy, that's just the rich people, but at the end of the day, an extra $6,000 a year in your paycheck, I mean, in, in your yearly income coming in, it makes a pretty big difference. As well as if, if the taxes are higher, so I'm talking about a $6,000 gain because taxes are lower on corporations, they're able to pay you more, uh, certain property taxes are lower, but then when you go to your home and you realize your property tax is $9,000 a year, and that somehow gets dropped down to another $3,000 a year, which is a pretty reasonable rate when you're already paying state sales tax in New Jersey as well, and income tax also. So if you're saving, now you're saving $12,000 a year. I mean, it's it's it really adds up over time. Twelve thousand dollars a year over ten years is one hundred twenty thousand dollars. That's a that's a college fund for your child. Um, but that's not usually usually it's somehow the business's fault. I, I just read an article in Fairlawn, New Jersey. They're getting rid of a uh, Nabisco factory, and the people are angry, and the mayor's complaining. And every article I read, I could not figure out what they did. That was so wrong. <laughs> Other than moving out of the factory. The factory's been there for 60 years, but they're moving out of the factory. And I'm sure part of it is because the government would shut them down probably for months. There's probably increased taxes, increased... It was probably too expensive for them to work there anymore because the state drives them out. And then the mayors and the politicians point the finger at the business owner. And the business owner's just kind of doing one of these with palms up to the air saying, I can't, there's nothing I can do. I can't afford to do this anymore. I can't afford to give people a decent wage and also run this business here because we're, we're running an old building. We're getting taxed to hell. What are we going to do at this point? We have to. We have to leave. There's no other option. Uh, we're going to go somewhere else where it's more tax friendly and we can afford to run our business. I just don't, I don't, I don't understand by the, confiscatory tax rates that drive business out how everyone points the finger at the business owner for trying to make more money it's it's very weird to me they they point the finger at the business owner like it's the business owner's fault that they were driven out by the politicians <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense and the politicians play the game they know that's their fault the politicians legitimately know that it is their fault when businesses move out of their towns or their cities or their states they know that they're at fault for it for the high taxation and the high regulations and they just point the finger with the people and they try to direct the public opinion and then and lockstep the media's right on their side i was just watching news 12 the media's on their side every time and and what they do is they um they vilify the business owner and then <laughs> everybody hates the business owner and then no one asks any questions about the politicians and i was trying to figure out why exactly they were leaving um but i just it, it's just not a a tax friendly or a business friendly environment in new jersey here so in summation I already read that. So next, Madison, he identifies the right of the federal government under the proposed constitution to quell insurrections. 
He states, and I quote, insurrections in a state will rarely induce a federal interposition unless the number concerned in them bear some proportion to the friends of government. It will be much better that the violence in such cases should be re repressed by the superintending power than that the majority should be left to maintain their cause by a bloody abstinent contest. Uh, the existence of a right to interpose will generally prevent the necessity of exerting it. So this is the the theory, the Trump theory, where he said, oh, we, we have these big weapons and we have them so we don't have to use them. So the federal government can step in when they need to to quell insurrections and the reason of having the federal government there rather than having the state as the backup. And the state can quell their own insurrections with their own militias. But to have the federal government as the back, the backup is they are a natural deterrent where people will know if we have if we insurrect here, the federal government's going to show up and we have no chance against them. So in other words, to keep conflict from becoming bloody and to prevent substantial loss of life, the federal government shall hold the power to intervene. Madison additionally summarizes a scenario when a minority of citizens can become a majority of persons due to foreign influences and those who are not admitted as citizens of those states or of America. And this one's very, very interesting. Uh, listen to this. He states, and I quote, I take no notice of an unhappy species of population abounding in some of the states who during the calm of regular government are sunk below the level of men, but who in the tempestuous scenes of civil violence may emerge into the human character and give a superiority of strength to any party with which they may associate themselves in cases where it may be doubtful on which side justice lies what better umpires could be desired by two violent factions uh, flying to arms and tearing a state to pieces and then the representatives of confederate states not heeded by the local flame end quote so more importantly this is what he says so and this, this I thought was very interesting. There's people that he's talking about that aren't technically citizens of the United States. And, and, and he's talking about, maybe he's talking about foreign influence. But if you have these two different factions, violent factions in the state, then it's actually smarter to have the representatives of all of the states themselves that are not heated by the local flame as in meaning they're, they're impartial, make decisions on how to quell these interactions. It's, it's just a smarter idea for, so there's no jealousy between one party or the other saying that, oh, well, you know, uh, the state governor took this side or that side. Now it's going to work. So the federal government took one side and there's really nothing that those domestic uh, disputes, there's nothing they can do about it. So Madison calls for other states not blinded by personal animus or heated by the local flame to be utilized to help in the effort of suppression. So next, he states, and I quote, Should it be asked what is to be the redress for an insurrection pervading all the states and comprising a superiority of the entire force, though not a constitutional right? The answer must be that such a case as it would be without a compass of human remedies, so it is fortunately not within the compass of human probability and that it is a sufficient recommendation of the federal constitution that it diminishes the risk of a calamity for which no possible constitution can provide a cure end quote and this is this is actually very important so so people are saying what happens if we have a situation where the insurrection is pervading it is, is permeating throughout the it is widespread throughout the entire united states 
then what are we going to, and, and they're comprising a superiority of our federal forces, how is this constitution to remedy that? And his answer is, there actually is, there is no remedy for that. There's nothing that the constitution can do. There's nothing that any governing document can do, because at the end of the day, the people really, if there is a consensus opinion, not even really a consensus opinion. If there's, I would say something like 20% of the uh, the population got together, they can easily, if they really wanted to, overthrow the government. And that's, I think, kind of what he's, what he's uh, alluding to here. So next he states, and I quote, to consider all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the adoption of this constitution as being no less valid against the United States under this constitution than under the Confederation. So here he's just talking about loans that he got, that they got from other uh, countries, how if we get rid of the Articles of Confederation and the Constitution, those those loans are not voided. We are still going to pay them back. They're still valid. And that's just uh, the point of that is to uh, create a public trust with creditors and foreign engagements and retain the spirit of stability in America for commercial reasons is what I have here. Now, creditors, they would end up being less willing to give the United States money, uh, if the debt were somehow eradicated through the Constitution, thus creating a market instability. So next he, he goes on and uh, he talks about it a little bit. He states, and I quote, This can only be considered as a declaratory pro proposition and may have been inserted, among other reasons, for the satisfaction of the foreign creditors of the United States who cannot be strangers to the pretended doctrine that a change in the political form of civil, civil society has the magical effect of dissolving its moral obligations. So by changing the magical effect of dissolving, changing the civil society around the political form, somehow does not dissolve uh, the United States from their moral obligations of paying off the loans. So the next miscellaneous power that he goes on to state here, he says, and I quote, to provide for amendments to be ratified by three-fourths of the states under two exceptions only, that useful alterations will be suggested by experience could not be foreseen. It was requisite, therefore, that a motive for introducing them should be provided. The mode preferred by the convention seems to be stamped with every mark of propriety. It guards equally against the extreme facility which would render the Constitution too mutable, and that extreme difficulty which might perpetuate its discovered faults, it moreover equally enables the general and the state governments to originate the amendment of errors as they may be pointed out by experience on one side or on the other. End quote. This is very important. So three-fourths three of the state governments have to agree to, um, to amend the Constitution. And then on top of that, you need two-thirds of the Congress to agree. And the most important part that he, that he talks about here is he, this is a, a good safeguard to make sure that the Constitution is not too mutable and it can't just be easily switched around and transitioned and changed. They actually wanted it. They, was a, they set the Constitution up for if you wanted to make a constitutional change or a constitutional amendment you needed to have a very wide consensus of agreement uh, across the states. But it wasn't too difficult. You would be able to discover the faults and remedy those faults. And then he also goes, moreover, he talks about how the general and the state governments and how the state governments can eat. They'll be able to point out the errors of amendments if it gets federally, if it goes through the Congress for two-thirds of vote. Then when it gets to state governments, they're the last safeguard they'll be able to figure out because they're the... They're much more direct constituents of the people than even the House of Representatives are. They'll be able to figure out if there's issues with the uh, amendment. 
So he goes on, and, and this is when I think he talks about the two exceptions. The exception in favor of the equality of suffrage in the Senate was probably meant as a pendul pal palladium to the residuary sovereignty of the states, implied and secured by that principle of representation in one branch of the legislature, and was probably insisted on by the states particularly attached to that equality. The other exception must have been admitted on the same considerations which produced the privilege defended by it. It's very interesting. So, so pretty much is, it's exactly what I was just stating before. You had the state constitutions, or the reason that you had the Senate the way it was set up is because the individual states, their legislatures were the ones that elected the senators at this time. Not anymore. It's not like that now. It's just completely democratic across the state by population. Whoever has the most votes wins, and that's it. This was much more of a Republican form of government because it's reflective of the federal system and federalism. That's why it's kind of weird I found that they got rid of it. I actually I actually prefer the founding system. And all that he's implying here is that the representation in the legislature, you have the House of Representatives, they represented like the people directly and population, the majority. And then the Senate actually more represented not the majority of the population, but rather the majority of the counties. And it gave individual sovereignty to those counties, kind of like how the federal government gives individual sovereignty to states. And that's all that he's talking about here. So lastly, uh, is the provision that the ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states ratifying the same. And this is just, he, he's talking about how three-fourths of the, the 13, or not even really three-fourths, because it's nine out of 13 at this time. So it's a little less than, uh, oh no, it is a technically I think it is around three fourths that they would have to, you would not need a unanimous decision to ratify the constitution, but all of those states that agree, that were in agreement would become the United States of America. Any, any states that did not want to ratify or accept the constitution, that was okay, but you were not part of the union. They were also, that is, uh, identifying the individual sovereignty of the states that if you don't want to be in the United States of America, you don't have to be in the United States of America. And we're going to ratify this thing. We're going to get our nine states together, and that's it. If you want to join, you can join, and that's it. So he goes on, he states, To have required the unanimous ratification of the 13 states would have subjected the essential interest of the whole to the caprice or corruption of a single member. End quote. So if you want a unanimous decision, it would have to, the entire whole would be subjected to the interests of one single member or the corruption of one single member, meaning one single state. That wasn't in agreement. He goes on and he states, and he has two things here that he that he states. Oh, and and this is because somebody asks, so they beg the he begs the question. Well, what happens then to those states that aren't in the United States and decide not to ratify the Constitution? And I think he goes on to say this here. He states, and I quote. One, on what principle the confederation which stands in the solemn form of a compact among the states can be superseded without the unanimous consent of the parties to it? And two, what relation is to subsist between the nine or more states ratifying the constitution and the remaining few who do not become parties to it? Now, he goes on to answer. 
He states, The first question is answered at once by recurring to the absolute necessity of the case, to the great principle of self-preservation, to the transcendent law of nature and of nature's God, which declares that the safety and happiness of society are the objects at which all political institutions aim and to which all such institutions must be sacrificed. End quote. So once again, he prioritizes number one on the list of self-preservation. So, so really, the question is, why is that you guys think that you can have, you can create this constitution that now has scope over all of these states if they agree with it? And um, and what principle do you find this on? Because in the Articles of Confederation, it really doesn't say that you can do anything like this. And their answer is, this is for the the good of the people, self-preservation, which is the number one principle. Because we know this system, and it's already shown, this system is very flawed and eventually will end in a disunion of the country. So now he goes on to answer the second question about what's going to happen with those other states. Um, he infers that peace must remain, and he felt... That for the need of self-preservation, all states would have joined eventually. But this is what he states, and this is how he actually ends it here. Talking about the states that decide not to concur and join in on the Union. He states, and I quote, In general, it may be observed that although no political relation can subsist between the assenting and dissenting states, yet the moral relations will remain uncancelled. The claims of justice both on one side and on the other will be in force and must be fulfilled. The rights of humanity must in all cases be dully and mutually respected, whilst considerations of a common interest and above all the remembrance of, of the endearing scenes which are past and the anticipation of a speedy triumph over the obstacles to reunion will, it is hoped, not urge in vain moderation on one side and prudence on the other. End quote. So all he's saying is we have this mutual respect and we need to keep this mutual respect because we've been through a lot through the uh, Revolutionary War and we must be mutually respected to each other. And, and he's right on that. So in summation, uh, Madison believed that the, to fulfill promises that have been endured in the founding of the United States, that it will be imperative for all states to form in union and ratify the Constitution. Uh, that's really it for this one. I greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in. Once again, just some housekeeping. I'll be doing Federalist Paper Podcast. will be Monday, Friday. In the middle of the week, I'll come out with a current event. And then on Saturday night, going into Sunday morning, I'll be coming out with the other, the weekend special, which is also current events as well. I cut down one of the Federalist Papers on Wednesday because in the middle of the week when I come out with that, and then on Thursday morning, usually when I come out with the current event podcast, people have problems catching up. And I'm just putting up too much content. And I also, myself, I need a break because I work a full-time job too. So uh, thank you for tuning in. I greatly appreciate it. Please like, share, subscribe. Make sure you drop the mic. Let people know about the podcast. I have once again been targeted i am on facebook a spammer account and it's much worse than it has ever been before where i can maybe post uh, like once a day at this point before it was i'd be able to post maybe two times a day so um yeah please please tune in let people know about the podcast word of mouth spread it as much as you can because i can't myself thank you and i will see everyone on thursday it's